So this morning we're continuing on uh, exploring the kings of Israel as we have been doing for some time. Um, And if you haven't been with us in this series, don't worry. Uh, Here's what we've been up to. We've been looking at the often bleak legacies of the kings of Israel found in 1 and 2 Kings in the Old Testament. They're incredibly honest accounts of God's faithfulness prevailing through these often, often scandalous tales of the kings. Their legacies often involved greed, deception, fear, failure, and abandoning God. But in these stories, we also meet other characters, God's prophets, who speak God's words, God's voice into dark situations. So today we'll encounter a few of these corrupt kings and a few prophets as well. So here's the main idea we'll be exploring today. So listen to this part especially. The Father's voice that comes to us speaks truth, brings life, and comes with promise. The words arising out of the human heart that neglect the Father's voice speak lies and lead to self-centered, destructive lives. We'll see this contrast working out today in the life of one particular king of Israel, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam's story will show us just what life does look like, listening to these human voices and following them and ignoring the Father's voice. So we'll walk through his story today in four scenes that tell of the rise and the fall of Jeroboam and finish considering what this text means for me and for you. So the first two scenes we'll look at or prior to the passages that were just read, the very interesting ones. Uh, So we're going to explore those two scenes first to set up the story for the main event. So scene one, the backstory. King Solomon's reign and his kingdom has crumbled beneath him. As Roger chronicled for us last week, Solomon's once humble pursuit of wisdom from above, wisdom from God, was eventually overcome by his sinful lusts for wealth, for power, and for his own glory. This not only led him to idolatry, but also to impose heavier and heavier forced labor requirements on his people. He turns his own people into slaves. By the end of his reign, King Solomon becomes like the very king that God had rescued Israel from in the the exodus from Egypt, King Pharaoh. Solomon has gone too far at this point. God has had enough of his corrupt leadership. So God speaks to Solomon and tells him how he will intervene to save his people. Let's look together at 1 Kings 11, verse 11. I think we have it. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So what's going on here? Remember, God promised to King David, who's Solomon's father, that he would establish his lineage, his rule forever. But Solomon, ruling in this line, as we know, has followed other gods. He's broken his covenant as king and treated his own people as slaves. Because of this, God says he's going to tear the kingdom away from the royal line of David and give it to one of their servants outside the Davidic line. But because of the promise to David, God will keep one tribe, Judah, 
in the hands of the Davidic line. The rest of the kingdom will be divided from Judah and ruled by another Israelite for a time. The purpose of this was twofold. First, to punish the royal line for their wickedness and their idolatry. And two, to protect the people from this leadership and give the nation an opportunity to live as Israel was supposed to live, walking in the ways of the Lord, keeping his commands, and worshiping their God named Yahweh alone. The promise to divide the kingdom here shows us that God's promises, one, are never dependent on human responsibility. He maintains this royal line, despite human wickedness, because he covenanted to do so. But it also shows us there are consequences for rejecting God and worshiping idols. The kingdom is taken from Solomon and divided in order to give the nation a chance to realign their hearts with God. Scene one closes here. God has promised to divide the kingdom and give the leadership of Israel to a servant of Solomon. Who will he choose? Scene two, we meet Jeroboam. He's a foreman over one of Solomon's labor units in Israel. He's a man of stature and strength, popular among the people. He's a natural leader. God sends a prophet to Jeroboam and informs him that he is not only Solomon's servant, but he is God's chosen servant to lead Israel in this dire time. When Solomon dies, Jeroboam will be anointed as king. Here is the charge God gives to Jeroboam, again in chapter 11. And I will take you, this is God speaking to Jeroboam through the prophet, and I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So Jeroboam is given the charge, really every king of Israel was given. Simply put, to walk in the ways of the Lord, to listen to his voice, and to lead his people to do so as well. If Jeroboam does this, God will be with him and bless his lineage. After this word from God, years pass by. Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam succeeds him as king. Rehoboam, we soon, we soon learn, follows after his father. He has no plans to follow the Lord and instead begins to rule by increasing the heavy burdens of labor that Solomon placed on his people. He becomes a more brutal slave master. But as a popular leader, Jeroboam steps forth and pleads with the king to relent from this, this oppressive labor system. Rehoboam refuses. His actions incite a rebellion in Israel. The people revolt and crown Jeroboam as their chosen king. At this point, only the southern tribe of Judah and its neighboring tribe, Benjamin, stay loyal to Rehoboam. The remaining ten tribes follow Jeroboam as king. Rehoboam, however, doesn't, doesn't lie for long. He musters an army to recapture his kingdom. But at this point, we see God intervening again. He sends a prophet to Rehoboam to tell him that this division has occurred by God's plan. Rehoboam is not to lead his people into civil war. And here again, we see God guiding Israel's kings toward his vision for Israel's future. 
that they might be a people who follow his ways and worship him alone. God's nudging them towards this, towards peace here. And we also see him leave space for the kings to decide whether or not to follow him. Rehoboam has a choice. Too often, of course, they do not. But in this instance, Rehoboam actually listens and obeys. He lays aside his arms and returns home. So scene two closes in a passing moment of hope. King Rehoboam has obeyed the word of the Lord and maintained peace. Jeroboam is now king over the northern tribes of Israel. The father's words spoken to him have become true, and he is poised for righteous leadership. But will he remember, will he listen to the words spoken over him years before, to walk in the ways of God, to keep his statutes and commandments, which would lead to God's blessing on him and his household? We have yet to see. Scene three, picking up where we read today. The story turns tragic. Now ruling as king, Jeroboam does indeed forsake the father's words, his charge to lead the people in the ways of the Lord, and sets out leading with only one sovereign voice ringing in his head, his own voice. We see over and again his actions are rooted in lies and fear that lead him to apostasy and destruction. Disregarding the peace brought by Rehoboam by heeding God's words and refusing to wage war, Jeroboam sends a clear message of distrust to his southern neighbor, Rehoboam. He fortifies Shechem and establishes his rule there, the city near the border of Judah. He is still ready for battle. The source of Jeroboam's motivations and the condition of his heart is made clear in verses 26 to 27. Let's look closer at that. Verses 26, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Notice that Jeroboam doesn't have confidence in his own call from God to lead the people. He refers to Rehoboam as the true Lord of the people, even though he has been anointed by God to be king. He is scared that if people continue to worship in the temple in Jerusalem, where God is appointed to be the locus of worship, his people will return to Rehoboam and kill him. Jeroboam doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust Rehoboam. And he doesn't trust the very people he rules. He's a man living in fear and insecurity. How profoundly he has forgotten the charge given to him by God to lead the people in faithfulness. In his efforts to grasp control of the kingdom and maintain its unity, Jeroboam takes his most destructive course of action that we read about. He takes the central act of Israelite life, worship of their God, named Yahweh, and manipulates this worship for his own purposes. This pinpoints the heart of Jeroboam's sinful rebellion. How does he do this? Let's see. Jeroboam starts by constructing two golden calves and setting them up in temples to be worshipped on the northern and the southern borders of his kingdom, and Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. Listen to Jeroboam's words, verse 28. He He says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
These are not just any words. They're specifically chosen words. Jeroboam is twisting the true words God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. God says to Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Jeroboam's statement is, of course, an exact contradiction of the truth. These idols were not the gods who saved Israel from the oppressive rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. Jeroboam has reminded the people of their story. He calls on their memory how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Yet he changes it ever so slightly to deceive the people to follow a lesser false god, an idol. He blasphemes God's gracious salvation that was indeed the foundation of their entire relationship with God. Jeroboam doesn't stop here. He goes on to create an entire system of false worship that was similar enough to the ordained worship of Yahweh to keep the people comfortable, yet actually had nothing to do with right reverence and adoration of God. He builds a temple in Bethel. Why Bethel? It was a place also rich in Israel's history and memory with Yahweh. And it was also en route to Jerusalem, providing a convenient place for pilgrims to worship instead of going all the way farther south to Jerusalem, where Rehoboam was king in his territory. Further, he appoints priests from every tribe for his temples, not just from the Levites, as God had commanded. And he institutes a festival on the eighth month, which would have rivaled the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem that happened every year on the seventh month. In all of these things, Jeroboam abuses Israel's memory of salvation and deliverance. He attributes Yahweh's faithfulness and salvation to a false god that Jeroboam created in order to serve his own purposes. We know what this is like today, don't we? Every time leaders, whether religious, political, or otherwise, draw upon people's faith convictions and experiences and manipulate them for their own gain, we see this same sin. Jeroboam's sin here is a reminder to all of us. God is not to be manipulated for our personal pursuits. He is Lord over us and over all of history. Before the the story is over, we will see Jeroboam come face to face with this truth. But we're getting ahead of ourselves for now. In Jeroboam's institution of false worship, the author also goes to lengths in these verses to highlight another key aspect of his corruption, his self-reliance. Let's look again at verse 31 to 33. Listen to the language that's very repetitive. The author says, He also made temples, and he appointed priests from all the people. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people and went up to the altar that he had made to make offerings. It's an entire system of worship contrived by one man's imagination that totally neglects the words and the leading of God. It's all about what Jeroboam made, appointed, set up, decided, and instituted. He's the one calling the shots here. It's very clear. 
This system, again, totally neglects the commands God gave to Jeroboam. Remember way back when, to walk in fidelity and obedience to him. And in doing so, the nation would be blessed with God's presence. But Jeroboam's heart was elsewhere. He did not trust God and he did not trust God and lived in fear, which led him to defame and blaspheme the one true God, who did indeed save and deliver Israel from bondage. He did not listen to the Father's voice. When he gained the throne, he forsook God's ways and trusted in himself, his own plans, thoughts, and desires, which led him to create new gods as he saw fit. How did this work out for Jeroboam? Well, we're not quite done with our story. Let's move to scene four, the last scene. Again, God sends a prophet to Jeroboam to speak on his behalf. This man of God, as the text calls him, arrives at Bethel as Jeroboam is standing at his newly erected altar, ready to offer sacrifices. The prophet, interestingly, denounces the altar itself, proclaiming its coming destruction and the destruction of those sacrificing on it. Israelite prophets did not normally denounce and speak to inanimate objects like this. But here the man of God does so to emphatically denounce everything that the altar represents, the entire system of false worship created by Jeroboam. And what happens? The altar is destroyed. God shows Jeroboam that, again, he will not be manipulated for, God, for Jeroboam's purposes. His rule, neglecting God's voice, was destined to fail. And in the end, it does. But amazingly, Jeroboam has still found no need for repentance. He extends his arm to command the man of God to be seized, but immediately finds that his hand has withered before his own eyes. At the last, Jeroboam reveals his heart is still hard to the Father's voice. He pleads to the prophet, pray to your God for me that my hand will be restored. Jeroboam is clear, this is not his God, the God who spoke to him, who chose him, who gave him the throne, who promised to be with him. No, Jeroboam has forsaken all of that. This is not my God, says Jeroboam. Yet, he still has the guts to ask this, this God, the one true God, whom he has rejected, to heal his hand. In the end, the tension between human consequence for evil and God's grace that we keep seeing back and forth in these stories of the kings carries on. The altar was destroyed, but the prophet prays for Jeroboam, and his hand is healed. The final scene closes with Jeroboam's hand healed, but sadly, his heart hard and still far from God. Our journey through this unsettling story leaves us today with one, just one question. Who will we listen to? The voice of God, our good Father, or the voices coming from our own unpredictable, fickle hearts? Jeroboam listened to the voice of his own heart, which led him to manipulate God for his own purposes. He forsook his faith in God's words, which offered life and promise, and followed instead his own ideas, which led him to craft a system of idolatrous worship, which would give him control of his situation. He leads his people into confusion and idolatry, 
following a God he made after his own preferences. This is actually a natural consequence of neglecting God's voice. When we ignore his words spoken to us, we very quickly begin to worship a God as we want him to be. We fall into the same trap as Jeroboam, seeing God as a servant to our needs instead of seeing him as a loving father who really does have our best interests in mind. And we, his beloved children, who are invited to humbly walk in his ways and follow his commands. Why would we want to do this, you may be asking? Because we enter into the full gift of life now and the promise of, of, of everlasting life in the age to come that following Christ promises. I wish I had more time to talk about this redeemed life that we have in Christ. If you want to know more, start by reading the Gospels. It gives a picture of what this kingdom, this life looks like. But today we just ask the question, are we listening to his voice? Do we live in a way that takes seriously the commands and the ways of God who made himself fully known in Jesus Christ? Or do we ignore his voice and form him into a God who accommodates to how we like to live and falsely validates the pursuits of our own hearts? Forming a God, even a Jesus, into our own preference is an amazingly easy and an incredibly dangerous thing to do for us. Why? Well, our culture takes for granted that everything about our lives should fit our preferences. Everything. Without taking into account the very radical truth that Jeroboam's story has blatantly revealed to us. Our preferences are often based on lies and are damaging to ourselves and to others. Jeroboam was given a direct word from God from a prophet. I wish I had that sometimes. That he was to rule and would be blessed if he followed Yahweh. But Jeroboam decided to listen instead to what came out of his own heart and act from that place instead of acting from the word from the Lord. What was in his own heart? Fear, insecurity, self-reliance. This is why Jesus taught in Mark chapter 7 that all sorts of evil things come from our own hearts and defile us. Jeroboam shows us this. The evil that came out from his heart led him far from God. Again, this is the opposite of what our culture suggests. We have to remember this. I'm sure you've all heard the popular dance song, Listen to Your Heart. And if you're like me, you've sang it at the top of your lungs on many dance floors. And you've probably heard the popular philosophy of our culture to follow your heart. It's the best ambiguous piece of advice to give out when you don't know what to say. For sure, it used to be one of my own favorite pieces of advice to give out when I didn't know what to say to friends. People would ask, like, should I date this person, or should I go out tonight? I don't know. Follow your heart, right? Just follow your heart. It seems like good advice. We all know that our hearts will lead us to true love and happiness, right? That's what I assumed, until a good friend of mine pointed out to me this passage in Mark, and another very potent passage on this subject, Jeremiah 17.9, which says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? If the heart is anything, it is deceitful. It surely must not be our guide. If we are to have any hope of staying in step with the ways of the Lord, of living in light of the truth that Jesus is alive and is is at work redeeming the world 
then we better not follow our own hearts, but follow the word of the Lord. Jeroboam's story demands of us this one thing, that we listen for the Father's voice, remembering who God is and who we are in light of him. Who is God? The Israelites' most common refrain about him says this, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Yahweh alone was the good God who redeemed Israel out of bondage, who loved them steadfastly, and who brought them into the promised land. This same God revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus Christ. He was and he is God among us. And he is a good God who loves beyond death and who redeems people for abundant, spirit-filled, transformative lives. I don't know what voices you're hearing today from your own heart, maybe from others in your lives. But let me assure you, words coming from the Father are the truest thing about you and lead to abundant life in him. So hear God's voice to you today. Who are we? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. In Christ, we are God's chosen people. In Christ, you are God's adopted son or daughter. In Christ, we are loved steadfastly, brought into his everlasting kingdom, and sent out to witness to this kingdom with every breath of our lives.